Um, author and syndicated cartoonist Ashley Brilliant amusingly shares, my life has a superb cast, but I can't figure out the plot. Is there a plot? Why are we here? Is there a purpose? A hundred years ago, Nietzsche definitively answered that, no, there is not. He said, the value of life cannot be assessed, meaning there is no value in human life. By observation and proof, by observation and proof alone, the only thing you can prove is the physical world. There's no spiritual, there's no transcendent. He argued that there's no significance to human life. Life is arbitrary, and then you die. The end. And since there's no purpose or eternity, his argument was essentially carpe diem. Seize the day. Live for whatever you want right now. Now, secular atheism, taken to its extreme, actually has intellectual integrity. I respect people who push atheism to its extreme. It makes logical sense. It is completely rational and, and understands empirical and scientific proof and evidence perfectly. But when it's at its most honest, it's also incredibly bleak. Because the argument that somebody like Nietzsche would make is that there is no difference between your child and a leaf. Both your child and a leaf are biological entities that will live for a little while and then they will die. Neither of them has meaning. They just are. Now, many people are dissatisfied with that answer because it also makes the same arguments of things like love, okay? Your love of your kids is explained by atheism at its extreme under this idea. The reason why you think you love your kids is because of a biochemical mental reaction that's happening inside of your brain. It's the result of centuries upon centuries of evolutionary process whereby your brain causes you to think that you love your children, which is really just an emotional feeling that doesn't exist. It's just you having attachment to your kids in order to protect and provide for them. It's survival of the species. So through eons, you have been honed genetically in order to have this feeling that causes you to raise children so that when you die, there's somebody after you. Your love of your kids is not actually real. It's just biology. Now, many of us don't get into those arguments, and we would respond with the playground answer of, well, that's just dumb. Because <laughs> love is more than biology, right? It certainly feels that way. Paul Kalanithi, neurosurgeon, who died of cancer a year ago, wrote a memoir called When Breath Becomes Air. And he described his process of moving from atheism into faith by understanding how the logical proofs of science were ultimately dissatisfying. He said, to live by scientific proof alone is to banish not only God from the world, but also love and hate and meaning, the world that is self-evidently not the world we live in. To live by scientific proof alone is not only to avoid God, but also to diminish love and hate and meaning.
Now, most people don't reside in that extreme atheism. Most of us are actually just good modern Americans, which means we're agnostic relativists. And we say uh, to the question, does life have a purpose? We say, I I don't know. I don't think we can know. But who cares? As modern relativists, what we do is we construct our own meaning for ourselves. We're individualists. And so we say, whatever makes you happy, that's your meaning. That's your purpose, whatever makes you happy. Now, of course, the problem with that is that there's no singular authority to appeal to. And what happens when two individualistic meanings collide? For instance, what makes you happy may be raising kids. What makes another person happy is eating them. Who's right? Who's to say? Who can know? What are you appealing to to say that one of those is wrong and one is right? Also, since my happiness and satisfaction is key to my meaning and purpose, what if I don't get what I want? Or what if I lose it? You know, underneath the midlife crisis is really a crisis of meaning and purpose. It's coming to a certain point in your life, getting everything you thought would make you happy and realizing it doesn't make you happy. And you actually get to an existential crisis of, is this all there is? If my purpose and meaning was to have this great career and this family and this good retirement and great vacations and now I have it all, now what? I'm sure a new car will make it all better. We are telic creatures. Telos means end or goal. We are goal and direction-oriented creatures. We are people who want purpose, and we're always asking why questions. We want to know why. And we're unique amongst the creatures. Your dog does not ask, why do I sniff trees? It just does. But your kids, on the other hand, are constantly asking why, aren't they? And by the time your kids become teenagers, they become annoying experts at why questions, challenging everything a parent might ask, hypothetically, of course. But it builds on in life. We are why question askers because we want purpose behind the things we do in life. We're why-oriented because for us, choice and intention matter, and we need life to matter. Most of us have a hunch, an inkling, a suspicion that there is something that matters, that there is a purpose, that there is meaning in this life. Maybe not everyone in here, but I bet many people have had an experience of the transcendent. Whether you believe in God or not, it's actually not an uncommon experience in the world. For me, I've probably had several of those experiences, and it's something like this. Sometimes for me, it's being in creation, like under the stars at night and overwhelmed. Sometimes it's in the midst of listening to music by myself with music that really connects to me deep down in. And all of a sudden, I'm overwhelmed. Usually there's tears and a strong, strong sense 
an assurance that I am loved, that I matter, and that it is going to last. And it's not just Christians who have these experiences. Barbara Ehrenreich, an author and political activist and atheist, had a similar experience when she was 17 years old. It was dawn, it was pre-dawn, and she was out on an empty street, and she was overwhelmed with a burning sensation. And she said in, in her memoir, something poured into me. This was not the passive merger with the all as promised by Eastern mystics. It was a furious encounter with a living substance. In love and in beauty and in music, we can be moved to tears. Joy and hope flood when you've had an experience of the transcendent. And most of us, even if we haven't figured it out, intuit that there must be a purpose. Christianity says, yep, there is. Christianity makes this claim, the starting point of understanding purpose is that there is a God. He is creator and he is redeemer. He is powerful, but he is also personal. He is the sovereign God of the universe and of all of history, and he also cares about you. Our story of lessons and carols, tracing the story of redemption from Genesis through to Christmas, begins in Genesis 3, and it's the fall of humankind, which is really the starting point of all of us. The sad part is there in verse 8, when it says, Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, heard the sound of the Lord, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And he called out to them, where are you? The basic starting point of every one of us is that we deny God. We either deny His existence or we seek meaning on our own, living on our own apart from God, trying to be our own God. We carry this out, living apart from the presence of God, and yet the very thing we are made for is to be in the presence of God. The story that we were reading earlier carries on with God bringing promises first to Abram to create a nation. That nation is birthed with a lot of struggle, but they're never the light that they were meant to be. They never reveal the presence of God to the world. And so then there's the promise and hope of a king, a king after David who would have an, establish an eternal throne and there would be peace, but it never comes about. And ultimately, the promises come that God would do something slightly different. In 2 Samuel, we read, I will raise up your offspring after you, he says to David, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then in Isaiah 9, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The longing of the entire Scriptures and of all of humanity is actually for the presence of God. When we are struggling in life, going through a midlife crisis, trying to understand our own identity, trying to make sense of this broken and fallen world, we recognize something inside of us that longs for everything to be right. 
And ultimately, that longing can only find its telos, its end, in the presence of God. We are longing for God to be present, to come, to right wrongs, to heal. That was Israel's longing for hundreds of years. And and then God did come, but not as expected, in, in a rather astounding way. It's almost too familiar for us, but let's Look at the verses in there. In Matthew 1, the angel says to Joseph, Don't be afraid. Take Mary as your wife, because that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah that the virgin will bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. That word Emmanuel does mean God with us, and it's incredibly relational. When you look at that word with in Scripture, it's describing the same thing that happens when the disciples were with Jesus. Basically, they lived with Jesus. They hung out with Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They talked to Him. They probably touched Him, patted Him on the back, said, hey, do you need some help getting up? They were with Jesus. They were in relationship with him. They were best friends. The promise of Emmanuel is not just God becoming this baby 2,000 years ago. It's God wants to be in relationship with us. The same God who needs to save this world from our sin and brokenness is the same God who wants to be with you and me. A mighty, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, came to be with us. He wants to be with you. Christianity makes the claim that there is a purpose because God created and is over and guiding all of history towards His perfect end, His telos. It also says that God entered our broken and sin-marred world and experienced this world. He died for it. He redeemed it. He died for you. He came to redeem you. The cataclysm of Christmas is not just God entering humanity. It's God, the powerful creator, becoming personal and saying, I want to be yours. You know, we want someone to get it when we struggle and suffer. When you're struggling and suffering, one of the things you most need is to know you're not alone. You want to be understood, somebody who gets it. And that's why, for instance, AA is so important to recovering alcoholics, because they need to know they're not in it alone, and somebody else understands the struggles they go through. When veterans returned from Vietnam, it wasn't just their platoon that they wanted to go spend time with. They wanted to spend time with any other Vietnam vet because they got it. They understood what they had been through during their year in Vietnam. When you've dealt with cancer, you want to know that you're not alone. You need the presence of friends with you, and you need to hear the stories of others who get what you are going through or what you have gone through. Author Dorothy Sayers 
said the God with us-ness of Christmas assures us that it all matters in the end. She writes, For what Christmas means is this, among other things, that for whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He at least had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. The incarnation, Christmas, infuses life with value and with meaning. God, for one, thought it was all worthwhile. Enough that he came to be present with us. The presence of God matters. Him being with us makes all the difference. In Genesis 2, Adam and Eve are in the garden enjoying God being with them. God walked and talked with humanity. He was face-to-face with them. But in Genesis 3, humanity hides from the presence of God, and they are driven out from Eden, from the very place where life exists, where they can be with God. And for a long time, people long to be with God, until in Matthew 1, the story comes that Jesus arrives as Emmanuel, God with us. And what's amazing is how that same phrasing carries on. At the end of Matthew, Jesus is risen from the dead, and he's talking to his disciples before he ascends into heaven. What does he say to them? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And the last hope we get in Revelation 21, the very end of this whole grand story, is behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In Jesus, the presence of God that is absent in us because we deny God or try to be God on our own is offered to us. And I would argue that you will find the purpose, your purpose, if the Creator becomes your Father and Emmanuel becomes God with you and His story becomes your story. Let's pray. God our Father, we live so often alone and feel the struggle of brokenness and sin, our own wrestling with a fallen world and fallen lives. 
And sometimes it does seem very purposeless. But if Christmas is true, and it wasn't just a baby in Israel, but was Emmanuel, God with us, make that real to us this Christmas. And give us the hope of knowing that you will never leave us or forsake us. Amen.